Now hear God's holy word from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Pay close attention, this is God's holy word. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is our life. It is our strength. It is our bread. Father, we need you and your presence and your Holy Spirit in this hour, on this day, in the weeks and months ahead. We cry out for your strength. We do not have the resources to live or to face the challenges of this life on our own. We trust wholly in you and your promises to us. So, Father, strengthen us now as we consider these things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Today, I'm pausing our study through the Ten Commandments so that we can stop and process our grief as a body, so we can stop and process the things that we're feeling and the things that we know as Christians, that we work through our thoughts biblically, and we remember how disciples of Jesus act. And we remember how disciples of Jesus think and respond and live and how we grieve and how we trust in times like these. The book of Ecclesiastes says there is a time for weeping. Romans 12 tells us to weep with those who weep. So grieving is appropriate and grieving is important. And it's critical that we not wallpaper over our grief or pretend as if there's nothing to be sad about or to sweep away the reality of what's happened. But we must embrace the reality of what has happened, to be honest about it, and to not act as if nothing has happened. The worst thing we could do is to act as if nothing has happened and go right along with our lives. We all know that this past Wednesday night, a young man in our church, 16-year-old Calvin Dunn, took his own life. He had been fighting and suffering mental illness for a while. He was under the direct care of doctors who were working with him regularly, but in a moment of weakness and in a moment of despair, he decided to take himself away from us. And because of this, we're hurting. And we are angry and we are sad, and we are confused, and our hearts ache. And it's okay to acknowledge this. It's not sinful to acknowledge any of this. Tragically, Calvin's choice is not a rare one in our world. In this country, 132 people choose to take their own lives every single day in the U.S. White males account for 70% of those deaths. And it's the third leading cause of death for people age 15 to 24. Third leading cause behind car accidents and homicide. About 4% of Americans report that they have entertained serious thoughts of self-harm within the last year. And if that statistic holds true, 4%, that means about four to six people in this room 
have entertained thoughts of serious self-harm within the last year. So what brings men and women to this point? What brings young people to this point? To listen to people who have struggled with these thoughts, it's not that they want to die. They're not enamored with death. They don't love the thought of death. Death is usually a terrifying prospect for them. They make this choice not because they love death, but because they don't know how to live, and they don't know how to live with the pain that they're experiencing. They don't know how to live with the loneliness or the confusion or the guilt that they're experiencing. Their pain exceeds their ability to address the pain. They run out of mental or spiritual or emotional resources. One helpful illustration I read is that often it's, it's a choice similar to why people jump out of a burning building knowing that they can't survive the fall. It's not that they want to jump, but they cannot bear the heat any longer, and they take the nearest escape. So with that in mind, it helps me to understand a little bit more of Calvin and what he did. And I confess, when I got the news, I was very angry with him and his foolish choice and what he did to his parents, and what he did to his brothers and sisters. And it's normal to be angry. But as I process this further, I have not a lot of anger left, but I have heartbreak, and I have sorrow for what he must have been thinking, what he must have been feeling. So now I have nothing but compassion and pity for him. I feel so, so sorry for where he was mentally and emotionally and spiritually. Yes, he did a foolish thing, but he was a victim of Satan's lies. Yes, he was a sinner as we all are, but he was also a victim of sin. Calvin is a casualty of our war against Satan and his lies. We have to fight back and take that anger and not direct it toward this young man, but to direct it toward our enemy, direct it toward Satan to combat Satan and his kingdom, and to go to war against him, we have to speak the truth and speak it clearly and speak it boldly. We have to fight tooth and nail to undermine the deception of the deceiver and to uproot his lies. So I want to tackle today four lies that you may be believing today or you may have struggled with hope in or struggled in in believing in the past and may come up again in your life. Four lies. First lie that I want to take on. This is a lie. It is not normal to despair of life. That is a lie. It is normal to despair of life. It is normal to feel overwhelmed with life. Christians despair of life. Satan wants you to believe that that's not true. He wants you to believe that sorrow is shameful and that sorrow is rare, and that it's incapacitating, and it renders you useless. That is a lie. In his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, in this letter, is dealing with all the trials and travails of ministry that he suffered, and he's relating these to these people to show them what he has sacrificed and what he's gone through to bring the gospel to them. And then he writes, as I read just a few minutes ago, but listen to it again, near the opening of this letter, he says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death 
in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You can sense the raw emotion in that phrase. You can hear it. We despaired of life. We didn't know if we could put one more foot in front of the other. We lost all hope that we were going to make it, and we wanted to give up. Do you ever feel overwhelmed? Do you ever get frustrated with the fact that you feel overwhelmed? Do you ever feel like you're at the bottom of your resources and that your soul is dry? You have nothing left to give. There is nothing in the tank. You're empty. Well, that's what Paul describes here. And it's at this point where you are at your most vulnerable that the enemy wants you to believe that you are all alone and that there is no help or no hope for you, that no one understands you, no one can relate to you, and you are incapacitated in your sadness and in your worthlessness. That is who you are. You are worthless and sad, and no one understands you, and there is no help or hope for you. That's what Satan wants you to believe. Because his strategy is to keep you from trusting in God. He wants you trusting in your own resources, which are empty which are pitiful, which are depleted. They're gone, and you go back to that well and go back to that well, and there's nothing there for you. And so you don't trust in God. As, as Paul says, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should trust not in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So you see, the apostle Paul is grieving here without shame and without embarrassment. He's very open with it. Paul is open and honest with his grief, as open and honest as I wish we could be with each other. We talk about surgeries and broken legs and headaches and backaches and stomach bugs and flu all the time because those are normal. And there's no stigma attached to any of those. So we're comfortable saying, I'm sick. Please pray for me. I'm about to have surgery. Please pray for me. But we attach stigma to sorrow and anxiety and depression because we believe the lies of Satan that suffering is abnormal. In other parts of the world, when they're grieving, you, they make a big display of weeping in the streets. They tear their clothes. They're openly wailing, throwing dust in the air, sackcloth and ashes. You've seen it on television, the way people grieve in other parts of the world. In the Western world, what do we have? A moment of silence. That's not right. There's something very twisted and sick about that. There's something wrong with us for us to think that way and behave that way. If you are sorrowing in life and feeling overwhelmed, you're not alone. You are not alone. Job and Jeremiah both cursed the day that they were born. Elijah asked God to take his life. Jonah didn't want to live. Jonah didn't think he could go on. David wrote so many psalms that say things like, the pangs of death surround me. My heart is severely pained within me and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. Jesus is tormented with sorrow in the night before his crucifixion, when he prays in the garden. Isaiah 53, 3 says, uh, telling us of Jesus, that Jesus is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus grieved. We don't ever have a verse in the Gospels that say Jesus laughed, though I think he had a great sense of humor, though I'm sure he laughed, but we don't have a, we don't have a record of him laughing. We do have a record of him weeping. 
And Jesus had not just physical suffering, but emotional and mental suffering as well. Whatever you are suffering from or with, whatever you are grieving, Jesus not only knows what it is, but he's experienced that kind of grief as well. He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It's not strange to him. He knows what it's like. If you're suffering, you are in good company. It is godly. It is holy. It is righteous to grieve. Sadness is a healthy emotion. So don't be ashamed of it. Jesus wept and Jesus was perfect. In fact, if you're awake, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you are going to find something to be sad about. The more mature you are, the more willing you are to lament over things that are broken, that are not right, and they're out of joint. Romans 8 says, the whole creation groans as it waits for redemption. And you and I are part of that creation. So you and I groan. We groan. So don't believe the lie that it is abnormal or that something is wrong with you or that you are a lost cause if you grieve. That's a lie of Satan, and I want you to hear me rebuke it. It is a lie. He wants your grief, Satan wants your grief to be stigmatized so that you don't talk about it, and so you just let it eat you up inside without it working out in a healthy way. Now, there are times when sadness becomes disordered sadness, all-consuming sadness, incapacitating sadness, what we might call depression. Sometimes there is a clinical or biological reason for this. Sometimes it's because we've gotten into a cycle of living on feelings alone. We, we have hurts that have no outlet. In either case, if you're despairing of life, talk about it. Talk to me. If you are out of your own resources, admit it. <laughs> Say, I'm, I'm depleted. Please come talk to me. I won't judge you. I won't think less of you. And if you don't want to talk to me, talk to someone else you trust, but don't isolate yourself in your grief. Our friends at uh, Triangle Community Church, where I've been training to become a certified biblical counselor, have sent a lot of resources. There's a resource table back here through this, through this hallway. At the end, there's a room. And there are uh, tons of books and brochures and pamphlets and, and things to read and reflect on and pray through biblical resources on a variety of subjects. And I invite you to pick one up and to look at that table before you leave today. And, and if, there's, if there's anything there that speaks to you and you read it, Come talk to me about it. Let's, let's study it together. Everything on that table is free. You can have anything that you see that you want. It's for you. But don't, don't think that your sorrow and your grief is unique to you in such a way that it makes you worthless and there's no help for you and there's no hope for you. There's a second. Here's the second lie that you may be prone to believing right now. The second lie is there's an expiration date to grief and pain. Somewhere we got this stoic assumption that you need to cry, you need to get it all out, and then get over it and don't ever think of it again. Don't even bring it up. But listen to how Paul continues in verse, I, I read verse 9, I'm going to read it again in 9 and 10. Listen to where, where he goes with this. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, 
in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. In response to this great despair, Paul says, the Lord delivered us from this despair of death. He is delivering us from death and we trust that he will yet deliver us again. Just because we were delivered out of desperate circumstances at one point in the past, doesn't mean that we're fully protected from ever needing deliverance again. I need help with this pain today, but I guarantee you that I'm gonna need help tomorrow and next week and next month. I need help because I must be faithful. I must be responsible before God for the duties he's given me alongside my grief. I remember when David's son by Bathsheba was suffering through the night and the child was dying, David grieved through the night, praying for the child. And when the boy passed away, what did David do? He got up, he took a bath, he anointed his head, he put on clean clothes, he went to the house of God to worship, and then he sat down and ate a meal. The routines of doing what need to be done, what ought to be done, are comforting. These routines are healing. They're necessary to be pleasing to God, but that doesn't mean that David never thought about the boy again or that he never remembered that night. Some pains, some grief never goes completely away. In Matthew 2, when King Herod has all the baby boys in Jerusalem killed because Herod is trying to kill Jesus, and so he, he decrees that all the baby boys, I'm sorry, in Bethlehem, all the baby boys in Bethlehem are to be killed, the mothers weep, and Matthew quotes the prophet Jeremiah. And this is, this is what he writes. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Refusing to be comforted. How do you say to these mothers, okay, you wept. Are you going to get over it? Are you over it now? They refuse to be comforted not because they're being sinful. They refuse to be comforted because they're being righteous. The holy offspring have been attacked. The children have been attacked by the serpent and their lives have been cut off. The enemy has trampled their houses and has taken the most precious gift out of those houses. How can you be comforted? When something like this happens, you, you, you'll never be the same again. Traumatic experiences change you forever. Your world is a different place. You are different. So what can we do for Rachel when she weeps for her children? Well, we recognize this. We recognize that you may not be comforted completely for a while. You may need to grieve for a while. How, how does a community help a suffering family? Well, don't ignore the reality of what's happened. Don't dance around it. Don't allow your own discomfort with grief and suffering keep you at arm's length. Maybe sorrow makes you nervous. Maybe a weeping person feels awkward to you. And sometimes we don't know what to say, and so what we say is nothing. But that's selfish. Don't do that. Don't do it. What you say doesn't have to be perfect. We know you're not a poet. We know you don't write Hallmark cards for a living. But don't avoid them. Embrace the reality, embrace the truth, embrace the facts of what has happened for this family. We are people of the day. We expose hard things with the light of the gospel, with the light of the truth. And so what you're called upon to do is talk, offer memories of Calvin. Don't avoid talking about him. Share stories. 
Cry. Tell them how sad you are. Tell them what you loved about Calvin. It's not a big story. It's a little story. I remember the first year he came to our camp. Sarah always cooks the meals for camp, and she makes loads of food. She makes a tray of bacon every morning, about this big around. There's a rainbow coming out of it. (laughs) And God's light shines through the windows on this big pan of bacon. And Calvin came in, wiping the sleep out of his eyes into into the cafeteria. And he woke up immediately when he saw the tray of bacon. His eyes got about that big around. And when he came back, we asked him, and Christina asked him, what was your favorite thing about camp? And he said, they had these trays of bacon, these big trays of bacon, huge trays of God's blessing of bacon. Tell them what you loved about Calvin. Share those stories. Let them know that they're not alone in their memories. You have not forgotten him. He was real, and he was here, and he was my brother, and he was my friend. And as we close around them, God delivers us and them from the despair of death. And he will yet deliver us, and he will ultimately deliver us from this despair. This is a long communal process. Don't think, oh, we took care of that. No. Satan wants you to pretend to get over it quickly. He wants you to be ashamed of grieving But it doesn't really go away. It continues, if you pretend that it's all taken care of, it continues to burn inside and have no outlet because lies are most effective when you isolate. And that brings me to the third lie. The third lie is this. You are all alone in your despair and you are better off alone. It's a lie. Satan wants you isolated in your sorrows so that you will be overcome to the point of destruction. You are not better off alone. Verse 11, he says, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. In this past week since Wednesday, many persons have been grieving and praying and working and serving and pouring themselves out in a multitude of ways to love this family. And alongside of God's deliverance for Paul and his missionary crew, alongside of God's deliverance was the personal ministry of the saints to them. There were many people for Paul praying and giving and encouraging. Their presence and support gave him strength to not fall into hopelessness, but to keep on. You may be inclined to think in the depth of sorrow that you need to be alone, that that you'd be better off alone that no one understands you and no one wants to be around you. But friends are the remedy. If you're following along in 2 Corinthians, flip over to chapter 7. What did Paul need? In verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Better describe you. Conflict on the outside, fear on the inside. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, God who comforts the sorrowful, God who comforts the despairing of life, comforted us how? By the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. What did Paul need? He needed Titus. That's what he needed. 
Paul needed Titus because Christians work out their sorrows in the context of community. The Psalms are full of the language of suffering and questioning and grieving, but the Psalms are not just personal private prayers you say when you're all alone. The Psalms are the hymnal of all the people of God. We bring our sorrows out and we share them publicly with each other when we use the Psalms in worship, like we sang Psalm 57 this morning. That was so appropriate. Psalm 42 that we sang just now, Oh my soul, why are you grieving? We bring our sorrows into the context of community. And we remember in this way that while the things we're grieving are very painful to us, our pain is not entirely unique to us. In fact, we have this pain in common. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There is a commonality to our suffering. Tell me what you are hurting from. Tell me what you are grieving. Tell me what trial you have, and I can take you to God's word. I can take you to this book and show you how someone else experienced the same thing. I don't care what it is. Tell me. I'll take you to this book and I will tell you most often how Jesus suffered this very thing that you're suffering from and how someone else dealt with it as well. Rachel weeps over her children. I just showed you that from Matthew and Jeremiah. David lost his boy. David lost Absalom as well and grieved over his adult son. God the Father knows what it's like to watch his son die. You are never alone in your grief. Never alone. So don't isolate yourself. It is not good for man to be alone. Satan wants you to hide and he wants you to be ashamed and to try to cover your sorrows yourself. That's when you are most vulnerable. When you are alone with your own thoughts, with no one to talk to and no one to share them with and no way to work them out, that's when you're most vulnerable. And that is deadly. Silence is deadly. Shame is deadly. Isolation is deadly. Do not pull away from the body of Christ. There's only death when you do that. Isolation is deadly. And Satan lies to convince you otherwise. Don't believe him. You need us and we need you. Do not suffer alone. Have I said this already? Come talk to me. Did I say that? Did you hear me when I said that? Come talk to me. Talk to someone else that you trust. The last lie that I want to expose finally is that our, our suffering has no meaning. And this is the final lie that I want to look at. There are many other lies, but this is the last one I'm looking at today. The secular materialist says that we're just random bags of atoms just bouncing off of each other, that we came from nothing and we're headed for nothing and nothing that happens has any point or design or purpose. Of course, that brings us no comfort whatsoever because we still hurt and we still experience loss. And now all we can do is scream into the void. That's all that's left. But look at the context in which Paul puts the suffering he just described, which I just read to you. He goes further in chapter four. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And at the end of chapter four, he says, therefore, 
we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Did you catch what happened there? Did you see it? Did you, did you listen to it? This transition... As he begins this letter, he talks about this crushing weight of despair, which becomes, in view of the glory and the blessing that God has in store for them, is a light affliction, which is but for a moment. You know, that same sorrow that he was talking about, I'm going to need deliverance from this day and yesterday and tomorrow and for the rest of my life. And yet he says over here, this light affliction which is but for a moment, is working out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The sorrow and the persecution becomes a light affliction, a trifle, a nothing, when compared to the weight of glory. So we don't lose heart, though we can't see everything. We don't know everything. We have way more questions than we have answers. That's not a defect. That's a design. God hasn't shown us everything. God does not expect us to have all the answers. He does not expect us to know the future. But when his purposes are all revealed to us in the end, this ever-crushing weight of sorrow works out into an even heavier weight of glory. The heavier the sorrow, the astronomically heavier the glory. I don't know the first thing about why God allowed the events of the last week to happen. I have no idea. And I've asked why, 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 why? But the fact that God hasn't revealed this to me doesn't mean that he, he doesn't have his purposes all worked out. God is the author and the finisher. He is the alpha and the omega. All times are in his hands. So for every what if that I ask, I have to remember that the God who knows everything, the God who has all power to stop things from happening, did not stop this from happening. He allowed it. Why? I don't know. All I know is that he accomplishes his purposes. He is absolutely sovereign, and I have to be okay with that. I have to trust his promises that he has a design for all creation and that all events fit perfectly into the story that he is writing. He doesn't live in my story. I live in his story. He doesn't live in my world. I live in his world. And he gets to write the story the way he wishes. And it always, always works out to his glory, and to my blessing. If someday in eternity we get to look back at history and we look back at this year and we look back at this week and we see all the threads and all the connections and all the chains of events that work together to work out into his glory and our blessing, we might be able to make sense of it, even if we can't see it now. But to believe otherwise, to believe that there is no purpose, to believe that there is no design, to believe there is no author, is to believe the lies of the accuser. So shut the mouth 
of the devil. Rebuke Satan and he will flee from you. Please hear me. You are allowed to grieve and grieve openly. Yahweh is near the brokenhearted. It is not sinful to sorrow. It is not sinful to grieve. Our grief As long as we are in this world of shadows, as long as we are in this world of sorrows, our grief has no time limit. Grieve, as you grieve, be faithful. But the more mature you are in Christ, the more you'll find to grieve. There's no time limit. But do not grieve in isolation. Bring your sorrows into the context of the body of Christ. Bring your sorrows into the community. The events of your life are not meaningless or purposeless. Your life is not worthless. You are precious. Do you hear me, children? I want you to look at me, children. Eyes up here, right now. You are precious. You are a gift. You are made in the image of God. Your life is very dear to us. I love you. Your parents love you. Your brothers and sisters and your grandparents and your cousins and your uncles and aunts love you. You are precious in the sight of God. Your life is valuable. Do you hear me? Men, are you listening? Women, do you hear me? Your life is precious and I love you and you are loved. Do not ever forget that. Do not ever become so overwhelmed with despair and sorrow that you forget that. You are bought with a price. Glorify God in your body and in the time God has given you on earth because God is working out for himself and for his people such unimaginable blessing. The depth of this pain will be surpassed and eclipsed and exponentially exceeded by many orders of gratitude by his eternal weight of glory. This is our hope and our trust. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for your blessing again on us in this hour. We pray that you would encourage us all to embrace the sufferer, embrace the sorrower, embrace those who grieve and to weep with those who weep, not to shrink back, but to press into grief and the reality of it. May we not be so ashamed of it that we harbor it in such a way that it eats us alive and we despair to the point of destruction. But give us the courage, even in our weakness, give us the courage to speak. Give us the strength to talk to each other and to share together in life and the life of the community. Hold us up by your Holy Spirit. Comfort our hearts and speak peace to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.